0: Welcome to the Abramoney 3.0 show, your guide to the future of all things money. Today, we have a very special guest on the show, Saif Emous. Saif is an economist and author focusing on Bitcoin. He has published the hugely popular book, The Bitcoin Standard, The Decentralized Alternative to Central Banking. This is a three part series where we will be covering everything from why does the world need Bitcoin how do we drive the mainstream global adoption of Bitcoin? And finally, we will cover the macroeconomics and the state of the world today. In this first episode, ABRA CEO and founder, Bill Barhaght sits down with Saif to discuss the present state of Bitcoin. A quick note, the information presented in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be used or construed as an offer to sell or solicitation of an offer to buy any of the financial assets listed. This report should not be construed as advice designed to meet the particular investment needs of any investor. Any opinions expressed herein are either subject to change, neither ABRA nor any of the participants of the podcast make any representations as to the suitability or appropriateness of these financial assets for individual investors. Investors must take their own determination either alone or in consultation with their own financial advisors as to the suitability or appropriateness of such investments. Without any further ado,
1: over to you, Bill. Hey, everyone. Uh, Bill Barheit here. Welcome to an exciting episode of Abra's Money 3.0. I have a very special guest with us uh, remotely today. Uh, you know him probably from from Twitter. Maybe you know him from uh, his book, uh, The Bitcoin Standard, which everyone in the community knows and loves. Uh, Saif Amus, welcome. Thank
2: you, Bill. Thank you very much for having me.
1: Yeah, great to see you again. I wish it was in person, uh, but um, you know we'll we'll do what we can. How are you? How are you dealing with all this uh, stay-in-place nonsense going on right now?
2: Um, well enough. I work from home, and my wife works from home, and um, nothing really much changed for us, um, so I can't really complain much. A lot of people have it much worse than we do.
1: Yeah, I, I, I concur. I have three three teenage boys constantly screaming when they're not uh, doing schoolwork, but you know I have nothing to complain about. I mean, we. In our world, we certainly have it really well, really good compared to a lot of other people. So so I appreciate it. Yeah. But um, yeah, for sure. We'll come back to Corona maybe in a little bit, uh, but uh, let's get right into it from a Bitcoin perspective. So mm-hmm. I'm curious, we'll get into price and all that other stuff going on, quantitative easing, six million, whatever. I guess my first question, just kind of a softball for you, is why is Bitcoin still the dominant cryptocurrency, right? It's been out there for 10 years. There's lots of other... We'll call them projects, I know you have a different word for it sometimes, uh, which we'll get into as well but but why is Bitcoin still dominant uh as a cryptocurrency versus anything else out there
2: yeah I think that's a that's a good question, uh, and particularly today, you know if you look at the uh, Bitcoin dominance index, which measures the total market cap of bitcoin versus all the other uh, digital currencies, it's at around 67%, 68 percent or so. Uh, I checked I think this morning. Which is astonishing when you think about it, because um, Bitcoin being distributed, in order for the market cap of Bitcoin to do, to rise for uh, by $1, roughly speaking, somebody has to buy a dollar's worth of Bitcoin. Somebody has to hold the dollar's worth of Bitcoin. So if the value of Bitcoin goes up, somebody has to decide to keep holding it and not sell in order for that rise in the value to continue. With um, other coins, it's a little bit easier. In other words, You and I could right now, uh, for a few thousand dollars, we could um, write a white paper and uh, get a coin listed on an exchange and um, do a bunch of wash trading between you and me and generate some volume for the coin and generate a market cap. So with $10,000, we could probably make a $10 million uh, coin and it could trade at significantly over $10,000 cost of production for a significant amount of time. So you really, you could say that to create a dollar in terms of market cap on an altcoin is much easier because you can just make the altcoin out of thin air and um, you can uh, create some artificial demand for it, which creates an artificial market cap, which might not be sustainable, but you can continue to do this. And so it's astonishing to think that 10 years after Bitcoin and after, I'd say, maybe seven, eight years of knockoff projects doing things similar to Bitcoin, all the Rest of them combined are worth less than half of Bitcoin alone. That's right. So, so I think this is, you know, this is a very different dynamic from the usual dynamics that you would get in a market with a uh, with a dominant company. You don't get these kind of monopolies or these kinds of dominance uh, in in a market usually in a free market. So you you'll find one producer, but then you'll get a competitor and um, you know, th- th- maybe you'll have two producers sharing eighty percent, and then a bunch of smaller ones. But this kind of dynamic, where one has about seventy percent, and then thousands of others have thirty percent combined, is a little bit anomalous. In my mind, I think um, I think really the, the the way that I've looked at it is that uh, s- since the beginning, you know, the the, the the entire value proposition associated with this uh, entire uh, digital currency idea. Was the idea that we were going to make money out of code, and that we were going to make money that was um, reliable? The, the whole point was this was not um, this was not just a payment mechanism. This was not just somebody's database. This was not just uh, money that is um, being moved from A to B because C lets it move from A's account at C and B's account at C. You know, it's, it's not. It's not a traditional form of money where there's an intermediary. So the way that this works, the only reason um, this works and the kind of, you know, the the, the raison d'etre is to make it so that it is automated money that doesn't require anybody to run. In other words, turning the operation of value transfer into something as automated as the operation of data transfer as it takes place right now around the world, um, or actually even more automated in the case of uh, value. But the, the key point is that you're trying to get rid of the uh, trusted third party. You're trying to get rid of anybody who's needed in order to, and anybody who needs to click a button in order for this to function. And that's really, I think, the key value
1: proposition. And um, But in that I think, thing, what makes Bitcoin unique? I mean, yeah. the, the projects that claim decentralized, you know, no middleman, you know, no trusted third party. So what, what really does make Bitcoin unique
2: it's, uh, you know, I, I think it's, um, I think what makes it unique is that we just need to, to, we can't accept that anybody who says, all right, I've created this thing that is decentralized, therefore, it must be decentralized. Because, you know, it's, it, it's hard to create a Frankenstein that you can't control. If, if you're creating it, then you could always switch it off. You could always turn it off. What happened with Bitcoin through strange um, historical coincidence is that after 10 years of its operation, 12 years or so, we can, we, we can make a very credible claim that there is nobody who controls Bitcoin. And whatever the reasons for Satoshi's disappearance uh, actually are, maybe he died, maybe he chose to disappear, maybe he's in jail or something. But something happened around 2011 where the person who was in charge of this project disappeared and the project continued, and nobody else was able to take charge of it, and nobody else has been able to change anything drastic in it. And so it, the track record of having operated for 10 years, I think for me is um, uh, Greg Maxwell says this. The, the, the key thing is that you could take Satoshi's own code that he launched in 2008 and run it today, and you'd be able to sync the blockchain all the way up to today's uh, blockchain. All the way up to today's transaction. In other words, today's transactions, if you send me Bitcoin today, it's going to be compatible with the original software implementation. So this this is evidence of why nobody was able to change it. And when you take into account that it went from $0 to, what is it, around $200 billion worth right now, and nobody managed to make a change. You know, there's so much incentive for anybody to try and mess with this in a way that allows them to make more money or to print more coins or whatever. Nobody has managed to pull it off. They haven't even been able to change the um, block size. In fact, I think this was really the, uh, the the thing that confirmed this idea that in 2017, you had a majority of Bitcoin businesses and Bitcoin um personalities and Bitcoin leaders um, agreeing on trying to do something with Bitcoin, and yet they couldn't manage to pull it off. So I think none of the other projects can even come close to this. The, the other projects, if you look at their culture, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a culture of uh, a group of people working together on an object. And obviously, there's nothing wrong with that. But it means that, you know, there's a single point of failure. There's a person there that you could uh, put a gun to their head and they could change the protocol or you could throw but decentralization them
1: Decentralization is also a spectrum. I mean, because you you even said, I don't think Bitcoin could be shut down. So, I mean, to that end, uh, you know, I follow you very closely online and, and a lot of our, our listeners and others do. And, and I think you're, you're super interesting on, on social media. But you've been very hard on other crypto projects that aren't are in Bitcoin, you know, you, you, you've used the phrase shitcoins many times. Do, yeah. do you think that all cryptocurrency projects that aren't Bitcoin are shitcoins? Or do you think that any may represent viable technology, either in their own right, solving real monetary problems or technology that may or should work their way into Bitcoin or both? I just
2: think that the, um, you know, the, the token itself, the token that needs to carry monetary value, that will carry monetary premium, needs to be something that is neutral. And neutrality is not something that you can uh, just install. And so once neutrality has been invented, once Bitcoin is already there, you know, once it, it's it's already the year 2010 or 11, and Bitcoin's been running for a couple of years, and it's shown itself to be running, then if there's any kind of motivation for you to want to need a, for you to want a um, a... A trustless digital token that you could use for the transfer of value. Well, that thing is already existing, and the only reason that you might not want to use it and we really want to use anything else, something else, is really that you want that new monetary premium to accrue to you. And I think this is really the, the, the issue with um, altcoins, which is that um, you know you can build all kinds of technological solutions on second layer solutions on top of Bitcoin. And that would be far more beneficial because you benefit from the economies of scale of Bitcoin. The notion that, all right, I have this business idea, but I don't want to build it on Bitcoin. I'm going to be building my own currency. There are a lot of explanations and justifications we've seen over the years for why this would be the case. But honestly, um, you know, I spent a lot of time looking into these and uh, reading into them and so on. But I can't, I just can't see, uh, I can't see a convincing case for why this really, in fact, is uh, is the case? I think once once we have the uh, neutral mechanism for value transfer, then that's really
1: um, that problem
2: has been solved.
1: So when you There's say the... neutral mechanism, you mean no central off switch, no trusted third parties, no project owner who can go away and shut it off. Exactly. Okay, but but on day one, the genesis block was mined on Satoshi's laptop. I'm guessing, uh, yeah. where there was clearly an off switch. Um, as a matter of fact, I'm guessing there was probably discussion if it was another developer there that hey uh, this has got bugs should we should we remine the genesis block because at that point it's not worth anything at least n- not tangibly uh, but I'm guessing they didn't based upon you know the history of what we've seen like you said it's all backwards compatible so there was probably a bunch of shit code in there that had an yeah. on- and so on that spectrum it went from completely centralized to very reasonably decentralized over almost 11 years. Um, and you can make the claim, the, the claim that any of these projects that claim eventual decentralization could start off in the same place and eventually get to decentralized and potentially solve other problems. Maybe that Bitcoin isn't solving. No,
2: no, because the difference is that, you know, when Bitcoin was doing this, there was no Bitcoin. But now that they're trying to do it, there uh, there is a Bitcoin. So, you know, you, you're... Trying to reinvent the wheel is different before the wheel is invented from uh, after the wheel is invented. But the
1: so fact that Satoshi was able to do this when nobody knew what, what he or she was doing, what they were doing, uh, is an advantage that nobody else may ever have Exactly. To.
2: Yeah, so now the cat is out of the bag. At that point, it was just a very obscure thing, and in order for the thing to take off, you know, it started off with a very small community, but like if you'd, in 2009, if he'd announced, hey, we're going to introduce this thing that's going to replace all central banks, and you know, if, let's say, Satoshi was actually, say, an engineer at Apple, and he had Apple um, backing or Google or something like that, and they announced, hey, we've come up with this new idea for a decentralized currency, which we're going to use to replace all central banks. I don't think Bitcoin would have grown in that way. But it, 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 yeah, it's, it's it's been this Trojan horse that continues to, uh, you know, it's always either too small to kill, or you just realize, oh, it's already gotten too big. Right. and i think you can't recreate that like it's uh we had one shot at making this work and then either it works and the frankenstein uh monster escapes the lab and can live in the wild on its own or if it's gone you know they're not going to let us build another frankenstein anymore
1: yeah
2: and so and 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 you know the fact that those the, the fact that bitcoin already exists makes makes it um makes it Uh, You know, anything that you want to build, any of these other technologies can be built in terms of second layers solutions on top of Bitcoin It can be built on top of Bitcoin. And the notion that we can make, we need to make our own currency because we need our own uh, trusted on uh, our own trustless on chain transactions is i don't think it's it's tenable because if you're making your own currency then it's not a trustless uh on-chain transaction it's your chain and you can do with it whatever you want and we've seen with like the bailout uh, that happened with ethereum uh, that you know it's I- ethereum for instance which is the second biggest currency it's it's quite straightforward for them in a couple of weeks to get together and roll back the blockchain and reverse the transactions so if you're doing that, you know, that you might as well, anything that else that you wanted to do, you can do it and just make it a much more neat uh, engineering solution to just build it as a second layer solution on top of Bitcoin.
1: Yep. Yep. What, um, what was, I'm curious, do you remember your first exposure to Bitcoin? Like, like the first time you heard about it or, or, you know, when you saw, maybe did you see the paper, did you read an article online?
2: I don't. It's really sad. I, wow. I wish I could. Everybody asks me this question. I really don't. I remember hearing about Bitcoin very early and hearing about it very vaguely, yeah. not even being able to understand it. I'm not. I'm not a programmer, and I, you know, I, I was not on that mailing list, and I had no way of um, uh, looking at the code. But I remember. My own, my oldest memories of Bitcoin is hearing about Bitcoin having already heard about it. So I'm not sure yeah. when I first heard about it, but I remember it was just this vague thing that uh, I'd heard about vaguely online. And then uh, 2010, 2011 is when I was uh, yeah. starting to pay more attention to it. But still, you know, there were no resources for somebody like me. Mm-hmm. Uh, to get in or figure out how to do it or figure out what private keys are. Right. It was very, very little material out there uh, for me to be able to uh, study it. And only really started paying attention properly and studying Bitcoin, I would say, in uh, 2013. that's when I fair studied. to say, like,
1: even public-private key cryptography was foreign to you uh, when you first heard of Bitcoin.
2: Yeah, I mean, when I first heard of Bitcoin, the first thing that I heard was, a bunch of computer people are trying to make a currency that's kind of like gold, and that the supply is fixed. Yeah, and you know the the only kind of reaction that I had is, well, you know, good luck uh, until the U.S. government shuts you down. Right, right. Uh, yep. But it was much harder. A lot of people yeah. still say
1: that right. So.
2: exactly, and it took two, three years of just watching the price go from under a dollar to over a dollar yep. to over a hundred dollars to over five hundred dollars for me to realize, okay, well. Maybe this is thing has legs. Maybe maybe it will run. And it's it was really in 2013 that I started to think, you know, this is more than just wishful thinking. This thing might actually work.
1: Okay, so so you would say, kind of maybe that was the price originally. That w- w- once you saw that it was supposed to be digital gold, hey, if if this many people are buying it, maybe there is something there. Is that a?
2: Oh, for sure, it was definitely the price that um, you know. I, I remember. Thinking of buying in the summer of 2011, I was going to New York to spend the summer in New York. And I remember before I left, I said, you know, I'm going to buy 100 bitcoins for $100. And I remember coming to New York and then the price went up. And I thought to myself, well, now it's expensive. I'm not going to buy five bitcoins with $100. Uh, Who who needs that? And I thought, you know, it's going to get attacked by government. It's going to get criminalized. It's going to crash again. There's no way this price will hold. And uh, but it's really it, it, I think, and I, and I think it's very true for most people. It's, it's you watch the price continue to basically give you a middle finger and tell you no, you're wrong. That's you're not right. how it works. Right. We're not right. going to crash. We're not going to go under a dollar. We're going to go right. over a hundred dollars. Well, dollars
1: so everybody is fine because <laughs> I'll buy it all for a dollar, no problem. <laughs> I so we can just put that aside. And yeah. on with the rest of our day, but I have a feeling there's a bunch of buyers, the last resort. So um, yeah. Okay. So I'm curious. I, I, I don't know, you're a humble guy, so I'm going to say this anyway. So apologies, but deal with it. You know, I kind of think you're like the perfect person to represent the economic macroeconomic aspect of, of what this represents, right? Because um, you're a young economist, you obviously believe strongly in the Austrian school, which I want to talk about in a minute. I've, you know, obviously read about it on my own. I've read it in your book. Um, you're, you're not, you don't come from, you haven't been indoctrinated in Western, you know, you have gone, I think, to Western schools, but. I have, but you I've have, recovered. But, yeah, you, you know, but you've recovered. And at the same time, you've, you've spent a lot of time in the Middle East. I think you spent several years in Lebanon. How, how do you feel like your world views have been shaped by maybe different experiences when did you and when did you first get exposed to the Austrian school? Uh, and and I'd like to eventually come back full circle and and see when you, that clicked vis-a-vis the the you know deflationary opportunity with with Bitcoin.
2: Yeah, I think um, uh, probably a, a gateway into Austrian school was um, so the, the, there's the academic stuff which is which I chanced upon intellectually um, at the university while I was doing my PhD at Columbia in that I was um, doing mathematical modeling of uh, sustainable energy uh, policy uh, studying biofuels. And I was trying to do these very sophisticated models of how the world biofuels market works. And, you know, the more sophisticated the models became, the more unworkable they became, And the more you try and think about making them accurate, the more you realize this is just impossible. So starting to think about this critically led me down the path of reading Karl Popper and then eventually Friedrich Hayek. And um, that got me to think in ways that were slightly different from what I was getting um, taught at Columbia. Very very dangerous territory for Columbia. Very, very dangerous territory. And, you know, it it, uh, caused me serious problems. delayed my graduation and you know I had yeah I had to rewrite a lot of parts of my uh, PhD Um, but you know that way of thinking of the world that okay that's uh, this world is a little bit more complicated than uh, um, just sticking it into mathematical equations was what started leading me toward once I started applying that towards monetary policy and remember 2008-2009 when uh, the world was going through the financial crisis uh, you start asking questions about that and you start applying the same framework. You know, how, how are these people being able to plan? Um, uh, how, how do these people figure out what's the right interest rate? And of course, it's not going to work out. And of course, there's going to be negative consequences. Yeah. So this was the, the one aspect. There was the other angle, which I found, I think, uh, I, um, you know, because of uh, things going on in the Middle East and the war in Iraq at that time, um, I, I remember hearing Ron Paul and being amazed at uh, his, his political rhetoric, which is just unheard of in U S politics right. so somebody who actually doesn't want to invade the world, doesn't want to have military bases all over the world. And, and he's and, nut. Yeah. And they call him yeah. nuts for it. You yeah, know, he, he doesn't want to invade Iraq and kill millions of people, uh, for no reason. And, you know, he's considered an extremist for it. So when you start hearing his political rhetoric, and then you start hearing the economics rhetoric, it's, it all started to click together. And, um, yeah. This is, you know, I was a gold bug. I was an Austrian gold bug. And I used to think, you know, gold is the answer and gold and hard money um, would, would fix this. And then, you know, you... So stop for
1: a second, because I, yeah. I don't want to go back to Bitcoin yet. I don't know if that's where you're going. Okay. So, so, yeah. so we have a few people who you've lost because they don't know what Aust- Austrian gold bug means. Mm-hmm. So let's rewind a few seconds. Okay. What, in layman's terms, uh, what is the Austrian school of, of economics? Uh, and how does that relate to gold?
2: So the Austrian School of Economics, if you ask me, is basically um, just proper economics before it was uh, ruined by um, having to be turned into um, policy economics. And so by the 1930s, when governments um, essentially took over universities and universities, or you could argue universities took over government, it's a complicated relationship. But once uh, government funding started to go to universities heavily in the 1930s, the question that is asked by the um, by the economists changed from "Let's study the world" into "How do we fix the world?" or "How do we tell the policymakers to fix the world?" And this is a very significant difference because it changes the entire way that you ask the question, and then it changes all the answers that you get. And so from the Uh, mainstream Keynesian uh, economic perspective, it's always about there's a problem and what can government do? And if you read a macroeconomics textbook, I, I used to always say this to my students in class, you you read a macroeconomics textbook from the Keynesian perspective, it looks like you're reading a religious text and government is God because it's omnipotent, it's omnipresent and it's omniscient and it knows everything and it can do things. And all that is needed is for just, you know, those enlightened macroeconomists to figure out what the problem is And then government can just implement the solution. Oh, we have an unemployment problem. Well, then we know that the answer is spend a bunch of money, build a bunch of roads and bridges, and give people money, and then unemployment is gone. And that's a completely different way of approaching economics um, from what existed before the 1930s, in which Economists weren't supposed to be philosopher kings or court jesters, if you want. They were just analyzing the world as it is, trying to understand how people make decisions. And it was primarily focused on understanding human decision-making. Economics is exactly the study of how human beings act under the condition of scarcity. We live in a world that is scarce, and we're constantly um, trying to... Optimize and make our life better given the context of scarcity and economics is the decisions that we take for it so mm-hmm. it's it, um, it's it's a very different perspective and uh, You know the the main difference on money is, is a is a fundamental axiomatic difference at the heart of the two uh, schools because from the uh, Keynesian perspective money is what the government issues and the only questions about it is how much should they issue and how much should they printing should they be printing. Whereas from the Austrian perspective, money is what emerges on the market, and so you don't need government to manage money. The market is perfectly capable of producing money. Gold has emerged as money before governments were invented, and um, you know it's it's always been used. And governments are the ones who need to put their. Um, who need to make their coins out of gold in order for their coins to be money. It's not that gold needs the stamp of government in order for it to be money. And that's why central banks hold gold today, even after they've demonetized gold, um, and they don't let their citizens make payments with gold, and they don't let you have a bank account with gold. You can still, um, your central bank still has a lot of gold. And I think the gold's monetary role hasn't been completely ended. So this different perspective on money is, is, is at the heart of the split in economics between those two different uh, perspectives. And so it, it, it's, um, as you can imagine, you know, this means the people from the Austrian school are far more likely to be accepting or, or, or to, to be able to process what is going on with Bitcoin because right. people from the Keynesian perspective will just, you know, they stop at the point of, wait, this is, this is a thing that pretends to be money, but yet it's not issued by the central bank. Therefore, it can't be money.
1: So, so Bitcoin has the same, uh, probably uh, long term, certainly the same deflationary value of, of gold insofar that it's, it's more or less, not guaranteed, but currently programmatically scarce. I mean, in theory, it can be changed, but it's like you said, it looks like it's more and more unlikely over time. Um, so that scarcity equates to what we call a deflationary property uh, over time. Uh, you've referred in your book and, and, and others online have written about this idea, building on this idea of the def- deflationary asset of what we call uh, stock to flow. Can you explain for um, you know, the, the folks here what, what stock to flow means and why everybody paying attention to Bitcoin should understand stock to flow and what it may imply for the future value of Bitcoin?
0: Yeah, this
2: thing, um, I I mentioned it in my book, and um, I'm astonished at the um, amount of uh, new work that is being done about it. Um, It's uh, within uh, gold bug circles and silver circles, you know, people who deal with uh, precious metals. I'd come across the work of an economist called Antal Fekete, who's a Hungarian economist. Um, Yeah, Antal Fekete. And he... um, he, this was where I come across this many, many years ago, and he offered what I found to be um, the only coherent explanation for why gold and silver. So some people will tell you gold is because it's shiny, because it has a nice allure or something like that, but it's not true. Ultimately, it's, uh, gold and silver are the only two metals that have a stock-to-flow that is significantly higher uh, than one. Stock-to-flow ratio is significantly higher than one. And the reason for that is ultimately about chemistry. Um, Gold is indestructible. And so this means that practically all the gold that humanity has ever mined over thousands and thousands of years is still around somewhere. So the gold that um, Egyptian pharaohs had uh, hanging on their necks is still around as gold somewhere. Even if it's in the
1: ground somewhere.
2: Yeah, it's in the or you know it got melted down by somebody a long time, and it might be in a coin that you own right now, or it might be in a bar that's in a in, in a yeah. in a central bank. But it's still piling up. Of some of it will have been lost, some of it will have sunk in the sea, of course. But the vast majority of it is precious, and so people keep holding on to it, and it doesn't get lost. So we're continuously adding to the stockpile of gold. If you want to think about it, you know, think the entire stockpile of gold in the world is. Constantly having stuff added to it, but nothing is being consumed. And so, as a result, even as we get better at digging for gold, even as we improve our technology for finding gold, even as we develop more machines that can dig deeper, the new supply that we can dig every year of the gold, when compared to all of the supply that we have produced every year up until last year, it's always going to be a tiny fraction. And historically, You'll see that it's about one and a half percent. In the 20th century, we have reliable data on it. It's, it sticks to around one and a half percent, never under one, and almost never over two percent per year. So even through some of the massive uh, gold price rises that we got, like in the 1970s, when the price of gold went from uh, thirty-five dollars an ounce to about eight hundred dollars an ounce in ten years, you know that's a thirty x move in ten years. It's enormous, mm-hmm. and yet. The supply of gold every one of those years was going up at around one one and a half, two 1.5%, percent or something like that, um, which is not true for any other commodity. If you can imagine what would happen to copper markets if copper price shot up 30x, uh, copper production would absolutely flood the market. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah.
2: Um, but yeah, sorry, go ahead.
1: I was going to say, so um, how does that relate to, you now I've seen this, this guy, for example, Plan B. Mm-hmm. I, I assume this person, well, he goes by the name Plan B online, I assume it's not you. Uh, no. uh, he basically has written some very interesting blog articles. He wrote a new one recently, updated, uh, which he calls it, I think, the stock to flow cross asset model for Bitcoin, which basically relates the, uh, uh, the utilitarian aspect of different commodities over time to how the stock to flow model works for those assets mm-hmm. I understand it correctly um and 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 as a result, he came up with a, a fairly logical and i 'm using air quotes, logical if you if you believe his perspective and i've seen some counter arguments to it, but basically with this idea that within four years bitcoin should be worth you know 250000 $250, dollars have you had a chance to 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 read uh this updated um model and i'm curious if you have a reaction to it do you yeah does it, does it sound right to you
2: yeah i mean i think honestly um so uh, the um, so, so the stock-to-flow, yeah, being high is uh, helps it be a monetary standard. So in my book, I mentioned how um, gold and silver have had this and how Bitcoin uh, has a stock-to-flow that's continuously increasing because the supply growth rate right. is declining. And that Bitcoin, what makes it unique is that eventually it heads to zero increase. So it has an infinite stock-to-flow. So we've never had a monetary asset like this before. So Plan B is um, an anonymous... Uh, uh, Data analyst who took that concept and decided to um, plot it. They just took, all right, let's look at the stock to flow and plot it against price, which, you know, sounds like such an obvious thing to do. um, But it did not occur to me at all. But he did it and he tried to see the regression uh, analysis. And when he did it, you know, my initial reaction was I remember when I first saw it on Twitter, you know, I was like, oh, get great you know another data scientist trying to put numbers on uh, things that are ultimately about human action and from the Austrian perspective, we're not very big fans of trying to quantify human actions. We don't think that there are such a thing as uh, constant in human action, as um, Ludwig von Mises used to say. So I was pretty skeptical, but then looking at the actual regression results, it was quite astonishing how well the data yeah. mapped to it. In other words, the you know, the, the and and if, if you're into statistical analysis, this is really startling because the Bitcoin stock to flow is something that was determined before Bitcoin was even created, so it's a completely exogenous variable or it's an independent variable of the price. That's the, the stock to flow or the supply growth rate. You could have done it was laid out by Satoshi in 2008 before Bitcoin started operating. So you could take the schedule as Satoshi put it in 2008. Correlated to the last 10 years of prices and you'll see that essentially the, it's an, with a linear logarithmic transformation. It just follows the same uh, curve and the, the relationship is extremely well correlated. In fact, the R squared is like point nine six four, which is basically one it's mm. um, you know, you don't get levels this high when you're measuring anything that has to do with humans. In
1: other words, it can't be a coincidence in, in, in your mind or, or in the mind of the person who wrote the article. I mean, you probabilistically speaking. It's yeah,
2: very- probabilistically speaking, it's, it seems to me like you're winning the lottery five times in a row. It's a, it right. could be a coincidence, but, you know,
1: I at that point, the game is rigged.
2: Yeah, the, the game is rigged. And it's, it's absolutely mind-blowing because they, it can't be rigged like that. Like Mathematically, it, uh, as an Austrian economist, I, I've said this before, I think this is the most serious challenge to uh, the um, idea that you cannot quantify human action and you can't put numbers on human action because we have something that's a number that was settled in 2008. And, you you know, we have 7 billion people all over the world every morning waking up with the chance of influencing that number. Mm -hmm. Every morning you decide to buy Bitcoin or sell Bitcoin or not buy Bitcoin or not sell Bitcoin, you are contributing to this price. So 7, 8 billion people are contributing to the number of the price that we see today. random. (laughs) Right. And yet it fits with what that guy did in before 2009. It's absolutely mind-blowing. Yeah. And, and, and the level of accuracy, you know, that level of R-squared is, I mean, if, if you were to take a gun and calculate everything according to physical phenomena and physical rules of figuring out the distance of the uh, gunshot, and then you did this every day for 10 years, And yet then you measure the distance, you would still not get, you would probably get something around that. You'd not get 100% because obviously there's going to be some kind of measurement error. But I'm saying that even with a perfectly predictable physical phenomenon, you should get um, an error margin similar to this. And yet we're getting that error margin or we're getting that, uh, I shouldn't say error margin, we're getting that um, that, uh, level of correlation, that level of R squared when we're dealing with something on which 8 billion people almost can affect every day. So so if this stock
1: flow really is going to infinity, it just, it almost has to pass, come to pass that Bitcoin replaces gold as the world's kind of, I don't know what you want to call it, reserve asset. Uh, Is that right? I mean, is that...
2: It looks like it. I mean, this was what I kind of was arguing in my book qualitatively, which is that this money is better money because it's harder money and harder money eats yeah. uh, uh, easier money. And that's the thing that I discuss extensively in my book. I bring other examples of it. So people who use seashells or people who use lime rocks, if you're using seashells or lime rocks, you know, they, uh, they're very easy to make. And so people who are using gold are using harder money and then they can just keep making more seashells, but you can't make more gold. And yeah. so they can end up buying all of your uh, property with the, Easy seashells that you make, and then you no longer have a problem uh, of you know you no longer have to buy gold because you no longer have any money, so money will tend value will tend to go toward the hardest money because the hardest money is best at holding on to it, so um, you would expect something like this to happen, but then the model formalizes it because it tells you you know as the, uh, the more the stock to flow goes up, the more the value goes up and um, it it makes sense that it would go up to infinity at some point because um you know at, at some point it becomes uh i mean according to what the model is predicting it becomes the highest stock to flow so then all the other monies uh nobody wants to hold them or the people who hold them witness their value decline eventually the only value left is the one that's left in the hardest money
0: thanks for listening check back soon for episode two and three of this incredible interview To find out more about Abra, visit Abra.com and stay tuned for more episodes to come from this podcast.